This week, we're going to pick up with a short passage that happened actually in the midst of the text that we covered last week. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 16. Again, if, um, if you were with us last week or you are able to catch the podcast, um, to give you an idea of where we're at, Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children most likely, so thousands upon thousands of people off of the small lunch of a little boy um, because Andy, I see your brother-in-law, he likes to steal little kids' lunches apparently. Um, so he wasn't here for that joke last week, so I had to make it now. Um, but we're in the midst of that. So Jesus has fed uh, thousands and thousands of people miraculously. He has done this sign. And then um, last week we covered how he comes back to that because the people find him again. And he basically says, you didn't come because you believed in the sign. You came because you got your fill. And so what, what are you really here for? You just want something more to eat. And, and so last week we talked about Jesus as the bread of life, this amazing sign that Jesus did saying he is the bread from heaven. He's the one who came down. He's the one who can satisfy us for eternity. And so this week we're coming to this pericope or this little short story that happens in the midst of that. So here we go. John chapter six, verse 16 says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. When's the last time that you were afraid? Can you remember the last time that you were like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm fearful. Uh, my mind is clouded, all these things. Um, for me, it was this past Thursday. Well, we're actually on campus. My, my children both go to school here, and they had a literacy night. Um, I'm on, I'm, my understanding is that the last literacy night had about 30-something people show up. And so we came to this one thinking, it's going to be this nice little peaceful thing. And um, that media center was completely transformed in an amazing way, like glow lights and everything, the whole ambiance. Like, it was amazing what they did with the place, um, but really a whole lot more people than they anticipated. Like, everyone I know, including diehard extroverts, were telling me, diehard introvert, like, that's a lot of people. <laughs> like, all these people crammed in there. I have no idea what the number count was, but in the hundreds. Like, all these people crammed in there to where, like, you can't move without bumping into somebody. And so after about 45 minutes of it, I'm like, I think, I think our time is up. <laughs> it's, it's, time, it's time to make our way out of here. And so as I'm going, um, Courtney is still talking to some people, and so she's got the kids with her. And so I have now, like, I'm, maybe, maybe I'm a coward, left my family behind, but, like, I'm, I'm making my way out, and I'm coming down to the street, level where we have parallel parked uh, between two other vehicles. And so as I'm coming to the backside of my car to walk around, you know, you're already kind of like traffic's coming, don't want to get hit by a car. So I'm mindful of some things. But as I walk in front of the truck right behind us, all of a sudden, bah! alarm goes off. And um, he's not here, I don't think. But if anybody knows Ryan Locuson, let's just all make it a habit that when you see him anywhere near your vehicle, set the alarm off. Um, <laughs> But it was so loud, like I had no idea that trucks could have such loud horns and terrified me. Like I was already on edge just from this whole experience of being with so many people crammed in a room and then all of a sudden this alarm, just scary. Um, that is what we call a jump scare, you know? Um, if, if you're into horror films or anything or going to 
the haunted houses, things like that. The, the jump scare is when like something is unexpected and it just, oh, that's terrifying. Um, but there's also the anticipatory fear. Like if you go into a haunted house or you go into a, a scary story or a scary movie, whatever it is, then as you go into it knowing the genre, knowing what you're supposed to encounter is something scary, then you have this anticipation and that actually makes it worse because you know you're supposed to be afraid, but you don't know when or why you're supposed to be afraid. So you already have this kind of simmering fear and then all of a sudden something happens and it's just that much worse. Or maybe you're afraid because you just actually see a horrific scene. That whatever you see is actually just scary in and of itself. So it's not that you are startled. It's not that you're anticipating. It's that this is just genuinely scary. As I see this, I am afraid. Or um, this is the one that Hollywood loves to play off of. There's this idea that fear is contagious. And so if you watch horror movies, and I'm not recommending any of this, but so much of what they do is accomplished by the fact that a lot of the scenes is nothing more than the expression of someone else. That when you see fear in someone else's eyes or on their face, it's contagious and you start to feel that with them. And so they can make it so much more felt because you see other people and it becomes contagious. So all these different ways of being afraid, different types of fears, and there's many more that we could go on and on about. But here's the thing. We all experience fear. We all have times when we're afraid of something. And I think it's really important for us in those moments of fear to really trace out, why am I afraid? What is actually causing this fear that I'm experiencing right now? And I'll level with you right now and say, for me, what I've found is so often my fears are directly tied to my idols. And when I say idol, we're not thinking just like, oh, ancient world, there's this little wood statue in my room that I secretly hold on to and rub and whatever. Look, Idol is anything that's in the place of God. So an idol, something in the place of God, is something that you're looking to for a sense of security, looking to for a sense of comfort, looking to for a sense of identity, looking to in place of God. And so often our fears are directly tied to the things that we have put in the place of God, our idols. And so maybe you should look back into some of your fears and say, what's on the throne of my heart? Why, why does that have such a grip on my heart? And likely because it's tied somehow to an idol, something that you've put on the throne of your heart. And so think, what are your greatest fears? What are you afraid of? Actually, right now in this moment, you think, what am I actually presently afraid of in life right now? What is that? And you may be able to say, it's something good, that I rightly should be afraid of this because that's loving and right and holy. Or you may say, no, it's actually just my idolatry being exposed. That it's created this fear in me. And so we take that back to this text. As Jesus, if we, if we recall, just prior to this, um, he has fed thousands upon thousands, and they're like, this is the prophet, capital P prophet, who is to come. This is the one that Moses said, one will rise up like me who is actually greater and you're going to listen to him. And so they're all looking and waiting for this. And they know that this is going to be the Messiah. And so they're like, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. And they want to make him king because in their minds, he's the coming Messiah. He's the coming king who's going to establish the Davidic kingdom forever as was promised. And so he's going to oust the Romans. He's going to take care of business. We're going to be on top. This is going to be amazing. And so they're like, let's make him political king. And Jesus, knowing, no, 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 no. my kingdom is not political. 
my kingdom is spiritual. He knows he needs to get away from this. And so he withdraws and he goes to a mountain. And while he's on that mountain, darkness descends. And his disciples, I don't know if they had already planned this, but they decide, we're going to get in a boat and we're going to go to Capernaum. And so they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And so as they're crossing this, keep in mind who is in this boat. Many of these disciples, if this is just the 12 or some more or a few less, whatever it is, but most likely, and John being the person narrating this, would have been one of them. These are guys who were professional fishermen by trade. They know how to navigate water. They know how to operate boats. They know what they're doing. And so they're not afraid that though it is nighttime, we're going to get in this boat and we're going to go across to Capernaum. And so they leave Jesus. Jesus has gone up on a mountain. And now the disciples are headed over to Capernaum by boat. Darkness has set. And yet, if you know the geography of the Sea of Galilee, it's surrounded by these steep banks where the elevation rises quickly around the Sea of Galilee. And so what happens, I tell my son this all the time, trying to understand why we play safely with fire, you know. (laughs) Heat rises. And so heat rises, the opposite is true. Cold temperatures, cold air, cold water, it falls. And so you have these steep mountains and you have this water that would heat up during the day. And this is a, a smaller microform. This is a geography teacher of me coming out. But this idea of continental breathing, that as heat rises, the water is going to cool and heat slower than the land. And so you have this high elevation, colder temperatures. You have this warmer body of water. And so cold air collides with warm air. And what is that called, class? A front. And what do we have when there's a cold front coming through? Storms. Because this moisture comes out and precipitates, it becomes chaotic, violent wind, all the turbulence and everything that comes with that. And so you have these sudden squalls that come on the Sea of Galilee on a regular occurrence. And so if you read through the Gospels, like, this seems to happen quite a bit. They get stuck in storms. Like, don't they learn their lesson? And well, it's something that happens a lot, actually, still to today. That very suddenly, a storm can come swooping down the mountainside, and it's upon them. They're in the dark. So I love the ocean, and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus except that his name rhymes with when, and he was just ordained as an elder a couple weeks ago, and he's fishing today. I'm like, okay, but I'm not wishing any of this on him. But I love the ocean. I love being in boats. I love being on the water. I don't know if you do as well, but it is absolutely terrifying when you're stuck in a storm on the water. We live in the lightning capital of the world, You get out on a flat surface, i.e. the water, and you're in a boat elevated above this flat surface, and it starts lightning, and you're like, lightning tends to strike things that are standing out. What's standing out around here? And the waves start going, and you get all this movement and everything, and it starts really pouring. And in broad daylight, when a storm comes on you in the water, and it starts pouring, you can't see anything especially if you're in motion, because now it's like little needles that are freezing cold. It's just terrible, and it's all hitting you, and you have no idea where you're at. And thankfully, we have technology today where you keep your eyes on the compass, and you just know land is east of here. we got to keep going east. But when you're out there, and there's lightning crashing, the wind is howling, and it's freezing cold, you're stinging water hitting you, the waves are hitting the bow and just spraying salt water in your eyes and everything. It's just, it's wild, and you can't see anything. And they're in darkness. So all the more dark. And these are experienced fishermen. And yet it says they've rowed three or four miles, 
They don't actually know exactly. But they've been rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And you know, it's like the physical exhaustion is setting in. They're cramping up because they're cold and wet and just going and going. And here's the thing about this lake. At its just widest points, it's only like 6.9 by 12.6 miles. And they're going across, meaning probably from the east side to the west side to get to Capernaum. So that means they're probably more on the northern side of this where it's a little bit narrower. So it's not even six miles that they were having to row. They've gone three or four miles. This should not have taken a long time, but they're stuck in the storm and just going and going and going and it's dark. And because it's dark and they're in 2,000 years ago, they don't have GPS to tell them exactly where they are or even which way to face because they can't see the sky. They can't see the stars. And that's how they would navigate you'd look at the stars to orient yourself and know, okay, this is north. We see Polaris. This is what we would do today. The the north star Polaris, you find that one, it's consistent. But you just watch the sky for a little bit. Everything else is moving, but that one stays in the same spot. So, okay, I'm oriented. That's north. I need to go this way to get across this body of water. They can see nothing. They have no idea where they are. And they're just rowing. You got to imagine like, we hope the wind hasn't changed directions because we're just rolling against the wind or with the wind or with the wind on this side of me or that side of me because we don't know. We can't see. And they're just stuck. And in that, you imagine the fear setting in when all of a sudden, out of the darkness and the gloom, water in their eyes, squinting, what is that? You imagine the first one who saw Jesus just come walking out of the gloom, getting close to the boat. (laughs) Ah! What is that? Who is that? This is terrifying. And they all see him. And in their fear, in their terror, Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Oh, easy for you to say? (laughs) Could you imagine Jesus just showing up, walking on the water? While they're terrified, we're going to die. Someone's probably bailing at this point, like, you stop rowing and you just keep getting water out of this boat for us. They're cold, they're alone, they can't see anything. It's scary. This is fear. And suddenly Jesus comes walking on the water like it's land. And he walks up to the boat. And he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's amazing. Because for these Jewish men who would have known the Torah, they would have known the Old Testament as we call it. They would have known the story of Job. And in the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, it says, he, meaning God, he alone, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. This idea would have just been sunk into their skulls. Who's the one who walks on water? Who's the one who treads on the sea? God alone. You just watch this man take five loaves of bread and these little fish and feed thousands upon thousands of people. They've seen him do amazing things. They're probably pretty convinced at this point, yeah, he is the prophet who's to come. He is the Messiah. He is the king who will live or reign forever, but they still haven't quite put it together. And suddenly, this guy that they're putting a lot of hope in, he just comes walking out on the water. He just comes walking out on the water and they think, Wait, wait, God alone treads on the sea. And here he comes walking out and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And all the fears that they're experiencing in this moment and all the fears that you are experiencing in this moment, 
or last week or that you're going to face next week or whatever it is. But can you hear the voice of Jesus saying, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Can we be a people who constantly hears the voice of God saying, don't be afraid. There's so many different types of fears. But today I want to point out three of them. There could be so many more. But three fears that I see just that I've wrestled with this week in studying this text um, that come out. The fear of the unknown. Do you resonate? The fear of the unknown. The fear of the unable. And the fear of the unloved. I think these three, there's many more, but I think these three are pretty primary. So many of other fears just fall into these three categories. So we'll start with the fear of the unknown. Again, this is, this is in the night. This is in a storm. All of the elements are working against them to where it's in darkness. And every time that John gives us some kind of contextual idea or element of like it's night or it's day, he's cluing us into something because he started this prologue, remember, saying Jesus, the light of the world that the darkness could not comprehend. And so, again, he pulls us into this narrative and says, darkness had set. They're in the dark, and they're afraid. They're in darkness. And darkness is only scary to us adults. Remember, we're not afraid of the dark. We tell our kids that all the time. But darkness is only afraid. We're only afraid of the dark because we don't know what's in the dark. Like, we try to help our kids rationalize through this. They're like, it's your same closet when the light is on and when the light is off. You? you ever did that? Maybe I'm alone. I don't know. Like, I'll pull the curtain back on the closet. Like, turn the light on. Like, you see everything in there, okay? Nothing scary, right? Turn the light off. Pull the closet back. They can't really see the squinty little. It's all the same. Go turn the light back on. See? It's all the same. There's nothing to be afraid of. But there's something about when it goes dark. Now it's scary. And still for us. Uh, this, this week, a home group, I think it was a home group, uh, talking with some friends. My mind is terrible. If this wasn't a home group and you were part of this conversation, I'm sorry if I get it wrong. But talking about night vision, someone, someone was talking about night vision, and they told me a story of when they're riding with another guy um, who had night vision, and they're like, middle of the night, it's dark, and one guy puts night vision on, turns the lights off on the vehicle, and they're just flying. And the other guy in the passenger seat doesn't have night vision, is just like, oh, uh, he breaks away. Why is it scary? If it was daylight, well, they're just riding in a car. But when you can't see, it's the fear of the unknown. Are we about to just slam into something else? The fear of the unknown. What are you afraid of right now because you just don't know how it's going to play out? How many of your fears are just because you don't know what's going on? You don't know who it is, what it is, why it is. Just the fear of the unknown can be so crippling for us. How many of your fears are tied to the unknown? And what does Jesus say in the midst of that fear? Don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid, because Jesus is the one who was up on a mountain. They took off in a boat, and it's nighttime. And Jesus decides, I'm going to go for a walk. And starts walking across the sea. And while they are blinded by the squall, it's dark There's rain pounding them, the wind blowing, the waves crashing over, everything to where they have no idea. They are in the unknown, and yet Jesus makes a beeline straight for them. Do you know that Jesus sees you in whatever storm you're in? 
You're never lost from his sight. He knows exactly where you are. He comes straight to the boat. And they've gone three to four miles. And yet in the middle of a storm, Jesus goes right to them and says, don't be afraid. You're afraid because you don't know? You don't have to be afraid because he knows. Jesus knows all things. Our Lord, our God is omniscient. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He knows everything. And so we don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't have to be afraid when you don't know because he knows. He knows. Or the fear of the unable. They've been trying. They're rowing. They're rowing. They're rowing. They're rowing. They're cold. They're wet. It's miserable. They're scared because they're unable. They can't make it to the other side of the lake. And these are professional seamen. They should be able to get from one side of the lake to the other. This is not a big deal. And yet they're completely unable in this moment. They cannot make it. And maybe that's you. You cannot... You cannot muster up enough strength. You cannot pull it together in your mind to make sense of things. You don't know how you're going to pull it off. And you come to a point where you realize, I can't. It's not in my realm of possibilities. I'm not able. And it makes me afraid. Let me just tell you, as someone who obsesses like my idols, success is one of the top ones for me when I feel like I can't pull it off, you know the terror that sets in? And so let's think about this in context. That Jesus fed thousands of people with bread. And John told us this is at the time of the the Passover. So Passover, we talked about this last week. This is the time to remember the Exodus, the story of when God judges um, Pharaoh. There are the 10 plagues and it culminates in the final night when the children of God, the Israelites, are to flee and they're to celebrate Passover. They're to eat this meal where there's gonna be blood of a lamb that's been slaughtered, it's sacrificed, posted over the doors. There's blood over this and so the angel of death who would kill the firstborn passes over the household and does not execute judgment on that and instead executes judgment on all the Egyptian households. And so we get Passover from that and they're to remember this. They're to celebrate this. This is how God delivered you, how he drew you out of this enslavement, out of your oppression, is this Passover. And so you eat it regularly and you remember when you take the, the bread you were, you were to create that bread and it'd be like flat bread. You didn't have time for it to rise. And you drink the cup of blessing and all these things and you're to remember and celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus then does this miraculous thing with bread in the midst of Passover and says, he is the bread of life. And so we're already supposed to be thinking now as we read this, think Passover, think back to Exodus, the story of God's people being drawn out of enslavement and all this stuff. And Jesus, okay, yeah, he does this miracle with bread. This is the bread of life. Okay, makes sense. I see the tie with Passover and the manna in the wilderness. Cool, I see all that. But now the disciples have left and you know, they're on a big high because they get to go collect all the baskets and there's 12 baskets full of bread and fish. Like, wow, this is amazing. They got to be part of this miracle. And so they're riding on cloud nine, like, this was amazing, this is so cool. But now they go to the opposite, and they're terrified. As they're stuck, they're unable. And yet now, Jesus, still in the midst of Passover, and everything we should be thinking about that, he comes walking on water. So now, in your mind, go back to the Passover. They're fleeing, they're coming out in Exodus, they're coming out of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. 
the Egyptian army, Pharaoh, has decided, no, I told you to get out of here because firstborns died all over the place, but now I'm not letting you get away. And so he gets his whole army together and they're pursuing the Israelites. And so Egypt's army and all of its muster, every bit of it, they're coming after the Israelites and the Israelites come to the Red Sea. You just imagine being one of the people of God in this massive crowd and you see the dust miles off as the Egyptian army is closing in. And here we are at the Red Sea. What are we going to do? They've got us trapped. They're going to destroy us all. And what did God do? He parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land and the Egyptian army tried to follow them in and it swallowed them up. And so again, our brain should be thinking back to Passover and now here's Jesus who has already brought them into this idea of Passover with the bread. And now as they're terrified and they're unable, there's nothing that they can do. They're at the end of themselves. Jesus comes walking on the water. You should pull these things together in your mind. This is salvation. This is deliverance. This is Jesus. When the Israelites could not free or deliver themselves, their fear was that they would return to enslavement and oppression. But God delivered them. And now as the disciples, similarly, are stuck. There's nothing I can do. I'm unable. And so I'm afraid. Jesus comes walking on the water to deliver them. And so maybe today you are in the same boat, so to speak, pun intended. Maybe more like the Israelites waiting at the Red Sea. I think, this is it. I'm going back into enslavement or oppression because I can't do this myself. Have you been fighting your struggle with addiction with your own strength and realizing over and over every time that you fail, I can't do this. At some point, you need to acknowledge that. And I hope that point is today. You can't. But there's one who can. His name is Jesus. And he comes walking out on the water when you are full of fear of being unable and he says, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid because he is here to do what you cannot do. This is our salvation, that we were all enslaved to sin. We were all stuck and unable and yet he comes walking out into the midst of our calamity and he says, I can do what you can't do. So don't be afraid. He is able. Is there addiction? Is there abuse? Is there some kind of oppression that you're terrified that you're going to fall back into? And can you hear the voice of Jesus saying, it is I, don't be afraid. He can deliver us. Or lastly, the fear of the unloved. The fear of the unloved. We want so desperately to be loved. This beloved church We want to know that we are loved. Like, what does anything, and we don't have time for this, we're going to do this in a few weeks, but like run down the rabbit hole of what is life if you are not loved? What is anything if you are not loved? We are so terrified of not being loved, and rightly so. And in the midst of this fear of, am I loved? Am I unloved? And there's nothing I can do about that? Like, how do I make myself more lovely or lovable? I can try all this stuff, but like, you know you know who you are. We can put some paint on the outside, but you know what's inside. And all these fears of am I loved, again, you think back into the Exodus. And when this starts as Moses is, is coming to deliver the people, but it starts with Moses actually being in exile himself. And as he comes up 
to this bush. This bush is on fire. And I don't know, like maybe a storm came through and some lightning hit it. I don't know what he's thinking. Like, why is that bush on fire? Like some little kid out here, little pyros. Like, who set that bush on fire? And yet, he pauses and he realizes the bush is burning, but it's not burning up. Something different here. And you just imagine him kind of puzzled, like looking at this bush that's on fire and yet not being consumed, when suddenly a voice, the voice of God, starts to speak out of this burning bush. And God and Moses have this exchange where God commissions him to take the Israelites out of Egypt. But in that, in that conversation, Moses is like, who do I tell them sent me? Like, who are you speaking out of a bush that's on fire and yet not being consumed? Because that defies all of our logic. You know, what is going on here? And God says, I am that I am. He gives us his name, Yahweh, that comes from this idea of I am that I am or I be that I be, meaning it's his aseity, that he is transcendent. He's not dependent on anything. He is the uncaused cause. There is nothing before him. He's the alpha. There's nothing behind him. He's the omega. He's beginning and end. He is everything. There is no start to him. He needs nothing. He is wholly perfect in and of himself. And yet, this God, who is perfect in every way and needs nothing else, he is transcendent, and yet he is eminent. That he comes to Moses and reveals himself and gives him a name of himself. That this is a relational God. That God, not dependent on anything, and so everything else being dependent on him, would come to us and point out his relational, relational nature as he gives us his name. As you read it in scripture, uh, most of our English translations, if you see Lord, but it's all caps, like why'd they start yelling, Lord? All caps, Lord, is our translation of Yahweh, this divine name. We don't actually know exactly how to pronounce it, but our best guess is Yahweh, because they wouldn't have the vowels. And so just this kind of jumbled consonants together. But God giving us his name, giving us his name that is I am, or I am, he just simply exists. Nothing else simply exists. Everything else exists dependent on him. He's the one that is not dependent on anything else. He is perfect and holy in every way. And yet he comes to us, condescends, he comes down with us and says, I want you to know me. And it's through a bush that is on fire and yet not being consumed because he wants him to get the point. He wants us to know him. Why would he want us to know him? Because of love. But this God, the I am, should we not be afraid of him? 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. You know that? Every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. We will give an account for what we've done, good or evil. There's a right terror that should come from that. There's a right fear that should come from that. It should lead us to repentance. Or hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28, when he says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
there is a right fear of the Lord. In fact, Scripture tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the beginning, the starting place of wisdom. We rightly should fear God. And so, a little quick one for you. I, I'm learning this. You know what one of the best ways to fight fear is? With fear. But it's a greater fear. If we have a greater fear of God than all of these lesser fears, <laughs> no, this is nothing. But you have to understand that this fear of God is not this fear of punishment. It's not this fear of like, oh, he's going to destroy me. It's a reverential awe. It's rightly to see he is above me. He does not need me and he could destroy me. He absolutely has the power to and yet he loves me. And so I'm drawn into this just, what? This wow, this astonishment, this wonder, this reverence that what a God this is. He loves me. So you fight fear with a greater fear, the fear of the Lord. The one who says, as he walks out on the water in the midst of the storm, when they don't know and they're not able, and he says, hey, don't be afraid, I'm here. Because did you see what he said there? It is I. He walks out, they're terrified, and he says, it is I. But do you see the footnote? Look at your text. Look at, um, this is verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do you see the footnote? Follow it down. What does it say in that footnote? Literally, I am. The Jesus, remember, they see him walking on water. They should think back to Job. Think, God alone treads on the sea. Jesus treads on the sea and walks right out to them, knowing exactly where they are and when they're unable to do anything. And his opening statement, and we, we change it a little to make it grammatically understandable in English, but literally what he says is, I am. And they should think back, I am. That's the name of God. And here's this man doing what only God can do. This is the I am. The I am has come to us. So fight fear with a greater fear, fear of the I am. The one who says, yeah, this is going to blow your mind, but just know that I want you to know me. Why do you want to know him? Why did he come? Because of love. Because he loves us. He would come to us and not just destroy us, but he came to us to save us. And so what then does love do to fear? John the apostle wrote in his first epistle, he said, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. So in your fear, what do you do? You have a greater fear of God and in that greater fear of God, it's not a fear of punishment. It's a reverence and awe. It's an understanding that he loves me. And if he loves me, then what in the world am I afraid of? Because there's nothing that can stand against him. He loves me and nothing can stand against him. So what's coming against me? When he loves me, the I am, the great I am loves me. Then what is this that I'm afraid of? A silly storm? What is this? My, my lack of knowledge, my inability, so what? He loves me. The I am loves me. And ha, ah, I don't have to be afraid because I'm loved. And so focus in on his love for you and all the fears, they fade away because I'm loved. You hear Jesus walking out of the mystery as you have no idea what's going on and you know that you have no way to get out of it. And he says, I am and don't be afraid. 
He loves us. Love drives out fear. Jesus coming to them in the midst of the danger. In the danger, in the storm, in their fear, Jesus comes in. This is the gospel, the good news. The God who is transcendent over all, the great I am, not contingent on anything, not dependent on anything, everything contingent on him. He is the creator, the sustainer of all things. And yet that creator steps into this mess, into this storm, into our fears, into our inability. And he says, I love you and I've come to make a way. And so he lives this sinless life. Whereas we fail and we're unable, he is able, he is holy, he is the perfect atoning sacrifice. He dies the death that we deserve on a cross. And he said he did that in our place so that our debt would be nailed to a cross. We would be forgiven. The slate is cleaned. He loves us. He has forgiven us. And he says, turn from your sin. Admit you cannot do this. Turn from it and turn to your savior who died for you and says, I love you. And now what are you afraid of? Because he died and he rose again. We're going to live with him forever. He loves us. What are we afraid of? This is the gospel. It's good news that God has come when we could do nothing. And he came to be our salvation. He loves us. And love drives out fear. You know, at the root of fear is just pain. This is where Kevin gets a philosophical idea. And I think like every fear I trace back to is just some kind of pain. Emotional pain, physical pain, whatever. It's some kind of pain is at the root of all of my fear. And yet there's a God who came and bore my pain. And he says, you know what the day is coming? You're going to see me face to face. And with nail-scarred hands, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And death and pain and mourning, all the former things will be passed away. No more pain. No more fear. But today, he comes saying, I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So if love drives out fear, come on, church. Can we be a church that takes some risks? When everyone else would be afraid, can we take some risks? Or you can take some risks. We should look like Jesus and we should hear the voice of Jesus saying, don't be afraid. I am is holding it all together. So look like Jesus. Our holiness matters. It really does. We do not have a holiness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness is God's righteousness. Our right standing before God, our justification, our legal declaring of being forgiven and free and right before him is not in and of ourselves. It's him. And yet now we live in light of that. So walk in holiness. Pursue him above all. Practice the disciplines that Jesus modeled for us. When you see Jesus doing something, we should emulate that. And so we, we ask everybody to have a discipline practicing partner, like covenant together with somebody that you can spend 30 minutes a week, phone conversation, FaceTime, in person, get coffee, whatever it is, but spend time every week with this person saying, hey, what's the discipline of the month? We highlight a different one every month of the year. This month, it's Bible intake. Talk to somebody about what you're reading in scripture. Go through our reading plan through the book of John. Read the whole gospel as we preach through this but engage in the disciplines that Jesus modeled for us. Act like him. Be in community. Jesus was in community. The communal God who was perfect in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect loving community, then overflowed and creates us and invites us into that community. 
but gives us the gift of the church, which is community here. Be in a home group. Be in a place where you can love one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, weep together, rejoice together, do life together following Jesus, but be together. Jesus modeled that. And Jesus came to serve. So will you serve? Join a ministry team. We need help with various ministries. Join a ministry team. Talk to Pastor Chris, who oversees our missions, local and global. Um, Go put some pressure on him, because this year we're ramping up. We're going to start something called a FAM, a family advocacy ministry to help with adoptive and foster families. One of our families just adopted a little girl. She's beautiful from Taiwan two weeks ago. We got to spend some time with them this week. Go talk to them. Ask about Ella. Love on them. Dorcas Way is a local nonprofit, a way of just serving the underprivileged. We're going to be partnering with them. Agape Ministries, they take Chinese students who come here to work with Disney and they end up sleeping for usually 24 to 48 hours in the airport and this ministry picks them up, helps them, feeds them food that they would be familiar with and starts to share the gospel and they have to start all the way back with, well, who is God or what is God? Because they have no clue what any of this is. And we're gonna step into that and help them so that we can see more churches in China. Serve. Go to your home group. This is my favorite question to ask home group leaders. Get together and say, what good can we do to show that the kingdom of heaven is really here? What can we do to show our neighbors, our own community, the kingdom of God is really here? Go do that. We should talk about Jesus because lovers, we are loved by God. Lovers express their love of their beloved. So talk about Jesus a lot. And don't be afraid to talk about him. Talk about him. Because our culture pushes and thrives on fear. Let's be different. You know, you think back to that idea of the horror movies. They've really figured out this idea of like, if we just show a bunch of scenes of people's expressions, you can capture the fear and the terror, and then people feel that with them. And yet the invitation of Jesus is to say, look at me. I'm not afraid. You don't have to be afraid. So what are you going to watch? You're going to fix your eyes on the media and everything that's telling us, be scared of this, be scared of this, be scared of this. I'm not saying that it's all wrong. But man, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. To hear Yahweh walking out on the water in the midst of our calamity and saying, I am, and I love you. I want you to know me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're loved. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint. Will you believe this good news? A follower of Jesus, who can you share this good news with? Let's be obedient in that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us, and you have revealed your love in this way that you sent forth your son Jesus so we could have eternal life. And God, there are so many things that create fear for us. And I thank you that you don't come in a condescending, just scolding way to rebuke us. Um, and you're compassionate. As Paul told us, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so God, would you help us to hear and see you coming out, walking on the water in the midst of our calamity and saying that you love us, reminding us of your love. We know that to be true because we look back and see the expression of your love as you died for us, Jesus. But then you rose again. 
So Spirit, would you shape us? Help us to be a people who are not afraid, that we would take risks, that we would glorify your name above all and live in light of the fact that we are your beloved. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.